How can we confidently determine what is and what is not reliable doctrine so we can decide what to believe? This is what Casey and I discussed in our last episode, where we introduced what we called the three doctrinal lenses or criteria by which we can assess the doctrinal reliability of a truth claim. In today's episode of Church History Matters, we're going to practice putting these three lenses to work by actually using them to measure and evaluate various theological truth claims to determine the level of confidence we have in them. So, welcome to Scott and Casey's Doctrinal Workshop. I'm Scott Woodward, and my co-host is Casey Griffiths. And today we dive into our third episode of this series, dealing with truth-seeking and good thinking. Now let's get into it. Hello again, Scott. Hey, Casey. How are we doing? Good. I'm doing good. And I'm looking forward to a little intellectual is it best to say combat, or are we going on a safari, or what's the best metaphor to use oh boy. for what we're going to do over the next few minutes? Pickleball. We're playing pickleball. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is, is just a little back and forth. <laughs> doctrinal pickleball. <laughs> a little doctrinal pickleball. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So doctrinal pickleball. Yeah. We're just going to play a little bit here. We're just going to play a little fun game called How Confident Are You in That Doctrine, I think is the name of our game today. Got it. Got it. But before we do that, you should review what we talked about in our last episode. Yeah. So our last episode was about doctrinal confidence. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to summarize really quickly because I want to get to the doctrinal pickleball here. But (laughs) we, we brought up three lenses to run something through. So first question, is it taught in the scriptures repeatedly? It doesn't say in the scriptures that Satan controls the waters. <laughs> yeah. It does say in the scriptures that you're supposed to be baptized by water. Mm. Repeatedly, several times in several different contexts, it teaches that again and again. So one of those, we'd have low doctrinal confidence in Satan controls the waters. One of those, you're supposed to be baptized by immersion in water. We'd have high doctrinal confidence in because it's in the scriptures a lot. Repeatedly, yeah. Repeatedly. Second one, is it taught by prophets repeatedly? So is it taught by the leadership of the church, most importantly, the first presidency and the 12, repeatedly? We also use another word here, unitedly. Mm. So one of the things we brought up is the documents like the family proclamation, Mm. the living Christ. The restoration proclamation. You can even say things like in 2015, when same-sex marriage was legalized by the U.S. Supreme Court, first presidency and 12 sent out a letter that they all signed. I never hear that quoted when we're trying to define our position mm. on some of those issues. We, we ought to use stuff like that mm. because when all 15 of them sign off on something, it is a big deal and it raises our level of doctrinal confidence. Yeah. Now, also, one of the things we cited was something like the family proclamation is coming up on being 30 years old, mm-hmm. but it's still quoted a lot in general conference. So mm. when it's quoted by the leadership of the church, especially the first presidency in 12, it kind of... Gives it that stamp over and over. We're still using this. This is still important. Yeah. This is still a big deal. Still relevant. Still here. Yeah. Is it taught by prophets repeatedly? Yeah. So that's the second lens. Third, is it confirmed by the Spirit? Mm. So this is maybe the trickiest of the three, right? Because we talked about how people can be deceived by their own emotions or by the other guy, you know, the bad guy out there. 
And so is the bad guy, or do you mean like Satan? Satan, you know, okay. the prince of darkness. <laughs> you call him the bad guy. Like, oh. Beelzebub, the lord of the flies. I don't, okay. He okay. who must not be named. I'm sorry. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm totally comfortable calling him out for who and what he is. Just say his name, Ron. Say his name, Ron. Fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself. So <laughs> bottom line, Latter-day Saints and most Christian, most religious people believe there are forces of good and evil out there. There's evil forces trying to deceive us. So President Packer called that sinspiration, right? Sinspiration. And you used the example of Hiram Page. I thought it was a great one with DNC 28, man who'd been deceived, obviously, sincere yeah. believer, but deceived by Satan. I think Hiram Page was sincere because yeah. the Lord doesn't tell Joseph to publicly repudiate him. He actually says, Oliver Cowdery, go and talk to him one by one and tell him that these things were not of me. But then we later published DNC 28 publicly. So anyway. Well, that was water under the bridge by then. So, okay. So we've got these three lenses that we use. And one of the things we emphasized was you need to use them all together in concert. If you lean too hard on one, it can lead you down the wrong path. So if something comes up in the scriptures, you should say, well, have the living prophets taught this also? And is it confirmed by the spirit? If you received a prompting of the Holy Ghost, it would be your obligation to say, does this line up with the scriptures? And does this line up with what the living prophets have taught? And the three are meant to act in concert is kind of use this phrase checks and balances yeah. to make sure that we know what's true. And we need to do the intellectual and spiritual work to find out if the things that we teach and believe fit into each one of these categories. By study and also by faith. Mm-hmm. And this forms what you called a doctrinal heuristic. Yeah, It's not a perfect system, but it is a good practical system. Used to solve these problems. And we want to say, by the way, too, this isn't a perfect system. Yeah. You're still going to encounter difficulty and complexity, but it is, I think, fairly reliable. And we didn't make this up. Mm -hmm. We're taking this from statements in the scriptures and statements of the prophets. And I would say our own personal confirmation to the Holy Ghost to teach this. So, Mm. so you're saying the three lenses are verified by the three lenses? They indubitably are. We're trying to practice what we preach here. It's an internally consistent model. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) And by the way, we're open to your suggestions and your critiques as well. We want to learn. That's the whole point of this. Okay. So in the spirit of learning, one of the things you proposed last time was let's do like a little practice round. Let's take some statements and run them through the three lenses and see how they stand up. So first of all, walk us through your levels of confidence sub-model to the model that we've established. And and then let's let's do some spiritual pickleball here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's such a funny name, sport. Like it has nothing to do with pickles. Anyway, but yeah, so I want to say one more thing that these three lenses, this model of getting at doctrine was part of what we called the theological method. And I want to emphasize that it's only a part of it, right? The first step is to distill truth from inspired sources, but it's not just to satisfy intellectual curiosity because the second part is then you got to live it, right? Yeah. We need to live it. Like Doctrine and Covenants 84 says, when the Lord's kind of rebuking the church about treating lightly the things that they had received, namely the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants revelations up to that point, he said, I gave you these things not only to say, but to do according to that which is written. I didn't give you the scriptures just to satisfy your intellectual curiosity. So you could have stimulating conversations about doctrine. Mm-hmm. That's not why I gave you the revelations. Yeah, It's so that you could then do and then be transformed by the revelations. Mm-hmm. So I think we're talking about a really important first step, which is, can we get the doctrine right? Are we confident that we're right about whatever this theological point is? 
And then step two, we just want to emphasize, is to now live it, right? If there's something actionable about that particular doctrine, as you put it into practice, it's going to unlock the power of that doctrine in your life in a way that just talking about it never can. So yeah. I do just wanted to put a plug in for actually living <laughs> the truth. As Jesus says in John 3, those who do truth come unto the light. It's not just those who talk about it. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's my disclaimer today. That this isn't just a game. We're not just trying to learn doctrine for doctrine's sake. This can be life transforming. So shall we? Let's do it. Yeah. So this game is called How Confident Are You in That Doctrine? And <laughs> why are you laughing at me? I like spiritual pickleball <laughs> better than how confident are you in that doctrine. But pickleball is the metaphor. That can be the subtitle. Okay, okay. All right. How confident are you in that doctrine? Subtitle. Doctrinal pickleball. (laughs) The way it works is this. I'm going to say a statement, and then you as the listener, and Casey, you and I will dialogue this together. I want you to think in your mind, how confident are you in that doctrine by these three measures? High confidence, semi-confidence, or low confidence? All right? Okay. Let's calibrate. Okay, we're going to calibrate with our first statement. Okay. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is essential for salvation. So... Listener, I want you to think about that. Is that consistently taught in Scripture? Is it consistently taught by prophets? And does the Spirit confirm that that's true? And uh, we can play Kahoot music here, right? This one should be kind of easy. Yeah. All right, Casey, what do you say? Are you high, semi, or low on this one? This is a real gentle serve, right? Yeah, this was a softball. Yeah, you're building my confidence. Totally super high confidence on this one. I can think of a dozen scriptures off the top of my head, probably more. Mm-hmm. The Articles of Faith, mm. Statements of Modern Prophets, yeah. United Statements of Modern Prophets, and it's one of those things that you know the Spirit just sings mm. when you testify and teach of that particular principle. Bam. And that one, all three. Wow. We could cite scripture if you want to. But... No, no, that was good. When it's really obvious, we won't. If it's not obvious, we might need to. So on that one, I think you're right. You're right. That one's easy. We're just calibrating. Okay. We're just calibrating. Okay. Okay, let's do another one. Okay, this one's harder. Mm-hmm. Next statement. God the Father is married. Mm. I feel pretty confident about that one. Oh, shoot. Okay, I got to push you on your sources then. Okay. Is this repeatedly taught in Scripture, Casey? Mm, no. <laughs> but I will say it's implied in Scripture in a lot of places. It's implied in Scripture. Where do you want to take us for this implication? First place comes to mind, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Mm. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him male and female created he them. Mm. I just notice the pronouns there, and there's a lot of different opinions on this. Maybe it's the Godhead we're talking about here but male and female. He's talking to somebody, let us make man in our image. And what they do is make them male, female. Yeah. So that seems to suggest that God is talking to his wife. Is that what you're saying? How does a he create a female in his image? Mm -hmm. If we're going to stick with the pronouns that are there. Okay. That raises some interesting questions that, again, this is something a lot of people kind of wrestle with right now. So I'm feeling good. Okay. Any other scriptures that we ought to look at that would state that outright or imply it? I'd also go to the book of Abraham, which doesn't just talk about God creating. It talks about a council of God's creating. Mm -hmm. And I think when you combine that with Genesis 1, it gives you 
a little bit of leeway to say, yeah, we could have a female individual participating in the creative process here because it's a council of gods participating. Mm. Abraham implies that not only did the father and the son participate in creation, but that all the great and noble ones, that's the wording that's used there. Mm. And then in the next chapter in Abraham for the council that carries this out. Mm. And to me, I feel pretty comfortable saying, hey, that's how you square the male and female pronouns that are used in Genesis to say it was this council participating in creation. Mm. There were women in the council. One of them is the divine feminine, the wife of God. Mm. I've got another verse that I think is pretty strong in its implication. Doctrine and Covenants 132 verse 19. How about this one? 19 and 20. Okay. And again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, and then it goes on to talk about if they keep those covenants and they're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, etc. Then, verse 20 says, shall they be gods. It almost seems to be defining God here as a man and wife married and sealed in the new and everlasting covenant. Don't you think? Is, am I stretching that or is that? No. Pretty solid that God, by definition here, is a man and wife exalted. Yeah, that seems pretty solid to me. Okay. So lens one, what, what would we say? This one's not a slam dunk. Not a slam dunk. There's not 900 references to it in the <laughs> scriptures, but there are scriptures where you can say by inference. Yeah. All right. What about second lens? Uh, is this repeatedly taught by prophet? This one, I'd say, yep. Where do you want to go? Where does your mind go? First place I'm going to go to is the place almost every person would go to, family proclamation. Uh, family proclamation. Does it say it there? Entire First Presidency in 12, paragraph 2, all human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. Ah, shoot. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. I'm going to put down my family proclamation and raise you the young women's <laughs> theme. Okay, okay. <laughs> It uses the words heavenly parents. Mm -hmm. It feels like if we're making the young women repeat something every Sunday, that we're going to be careful about the wording in that. And the leaders of the church ask the young women to repeat a theme that says we are daughters of heavenly parents. Mm. Okay, so this isn't like some esoteric doctrine that's like you're going to find in like one little quote in the Journal of Discourses. This is like on a lot of people's wall in their home. Like they've got on their wall hanging up, a united statement of the prophet saying that we have heavenly parents, a husband and a wife married in whose image we are formed and created were their children. I remember distinctly in general conference hearing references to this. Elder Holland gave a talk on mothers where he taught this several times. I could give mm-hmm. you the exact reference there if you gave me a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So lots of statements about Heavenly Mother that have been made in the past obviously suggest that she's the wife of Heavenly Father. Yeah, and I would also add, this isn't a statement by a prophet, but there is a gospel topics essay on Heavenly Mother Mm -hmm. that everybody should read. You can go through and it gives all the places where this was taught. It's a good repository. Yeah, it's a good repository that's written cautiously and responsibly to basically say, yeah, this isn't a new thing. It didn't show up in the family proclamation in 1995. It was taught by Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. Boom. I feel good about that. What about the third lens, the spirit? Does the spirit confirm that God the Father is married? That resonates in my soul when you think about the whole plan of salvation. Yeah. Parents uh, with children, helping them learn and grow and become what they are. 
that is the telos of humanity to become like our heavenly parents. Like that feels right. That feels right in my soul. There's nothing weird about it. It feels like it resonates nicely. I can only speak for myself. It feels good for me as I am a man, but I am a big fan of women. I've <laughs> been married to one for 23 years and have three daughters. To be able to say to them, there is a divine feminine. Mm-hmm. There is someone out there that you're created in the image of and after and that you can aspire to become like yeah. is one of those precious truths that I, about the restoration that I really deeply love. It just it works for me. Feels right. Yeah, feels good. All right, let's go to our next question on the marriage topic. Okay. How about this? Jesus was married because he had to obey all the ordinances, quote, to fulfill all righteousness. So if Jesus had to be baptized, the logic goes, he would need to be married. So Jesus is married. That's the statement. Are you highly confident, semi-confident, or low confident on that one? Listeners, what do you think? Are any scriptures out there, any words of the prophets? The Holy Ghost confirmed that one. You already semi-quoted it here, but I wouldn't go to any New Testament scripture. I'd go to 2 Nephi 31. This is verse 5 in 2 Nephi 31. If the Lamb of God, he being holy, should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness, oh, then how much more need have we, being unholy, to be baptized? even by water. And now I would ask you, my beloved brethren, where in the Lamb of God to fill all righteousness in being baptized by water? Know ye not that he was holy, but notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of men. According to the flesh, he humbleth himself before the Father and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandment. So Jesus was baptized not because he needed a remission of sins, he's sinless, Mm -hmm. but because he obeys the commandments. And if Heavenly Father has set marriage as one of the things that, that we're asked to do on our path to exaltation, I think you could infer that Jesus was married. So this is an example of using some argument, some logic, some reason. Yeah. But you can't solidly root it in Scripture. Can we say it like that? Can I find a passage that says he was? Nope. Yeah. I'm Nope, I can't. Yeah, that's interesting. And there have been apostles who have dared to venture into these waters, mm-hmm. like uh, Elder Orson Hyde. Here's one that gets quoted sometimes. He thought there might be a scriptural argument to be made in the wedding feast at Cana in John chapter 2. He said, quote, now there was actually a marriage at Cana. Right? This is the setting where Jesus is going to turn water into wine. Mm-hmm. Remember his mom is in charge of refreshments? Like she's the one that comes to him and says, Jesus, we've run out of wine. Like do something. You know, can you help? I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. And so Elder Orson Hyde says, If Jesus was not the bridegroom on that occasion, please tell who was. If any man can show this and prove that it was not the Savior of the world, then I will acknowledge I am in error. We say it was Jesus Christ who was married, to be brought into the relation whereby he could see his seed, highlighting Isaiah 53.10, before he was crucified. Mm. Close quote. Woo! He is doctrinally speculative here. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And honestly... The way he puts it, yeah. if any man can show this and prove that it was not the Savior of the world, then I will acknowledge that. I can't prove. He, he, <laughs> I, I can't assail him on that particular point. It's like an argument from absence, right? Yeah. If you can't find that it wasn't, then it necessarily was. That's a little bit weak in terms of logic. but I'm not assailing Elder Hyde either here. Yeah. What I would say is I don't know anybody else that taught this. There you go. I, I can't think of any other instance uh, where a leader of the church has taught this particular 
idea mm. in such a forceful way, for sure. It seems like Orson Hyde's alone here. Your instincts are very sharp, Casey Griffiths. I think that's the right kind of flag on this one, right? This isn't consistently taught. That's a really strong statement, but it's not consistently taught. Yeah. In fact, Elder Charles W. Penrose of the First Presidency, he took a much more conservative approach. He said, quote, We do not know anything about Jesus Christ being married. The church has no authoritative declaration on the subject. Close quote. Like... We don't know. That's, and I think that's actually pretty fair to say from Scripture. We don't know. Yeah. Logic and reason, the way that you have framed it, Casey, it would make sense. Yeah, he's married, no problem. If he wasn't married, I'm not concerned about Jesus' salvation, right, if we're trying to make it fit <laughs> the paradigm of having to go through every ordinance that we go through in the temple today. Like, I don't know what it looked like in his day, but I, for one, am not concerned about Jesus' salvation. Yeah. If there's a different way for him to work that out, like, I think that's going to be fine. So. If he is, great. If he wasn't, no problem. But no solid doctrine on that point, I would say, right? Yeah. I usually add this in my classes. Sometimes what's not in the scriptures can be instructive too. And if Jesus was married, he didn't put anything about it in the scriptures. Yeah. His disciples didn't mention it. It's not in the scriptural canon. Maybe Jesus was married and he just thought that was none of our business. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us about his mother, his father, they talk about Mary, they talk about Joseph, they talk about his brothers and sisters, they talk about his brother James. No mention of his wife. Does that mean that she wasn't there? No. Does that mean that she necessarily was? No. We don't know. Yeah. Some people want to say, it was Mary Magdalene. Obviously. It's like, really? Obviously? Why? Because you know that time when, he, like when he's resurrected and Mary goes to the tomb and she turns around, she thought he was the gardener, she turns around and says, Rabboni. Mm which everybody knows is Greek for master, right? Or teacher. Or teacher, yeah. And she recognizes him. He says, Mary. And then she goes in to embrace him, right? And he says, hold me not. The reason he gives is because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Why is Mary so familiar with him that she wants to go embrace him? So you have to just do a bunch of speculative work like that. It's like, are we confident that Mary was his wife? I'm not. Did she love him? Yeah. Did a lot of people love him? Yes. Yes. He's very beloved. Yeah. How many people would want to embrace him after thinking he was dead? I think a lot. Yeah. Right. So that's not an ironclad, slam dunk, doctrinal booyah, right? That's, anyway. So confidence on this one, where would you say you're at, Casey, from all of that? I'd say mid to low on this one. Mid to low. Interesting. It's a cool idea, and I don't disparage anybody exploring it yeah but i would also say you're on a little bit shakier ground here yeah interesting okay let's do another one how about this god will forgive us as we truly repent of our sins I'm feeling pretty good about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty consistently taught scripture, prophets, spirit confirmed. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering, you know, do I need to go and look up forgiveness under gospel topics in gospel library right here? I've got my iPad with me. Let's see. They are citing one, two, three, four, five scriptures here. Six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 30, 40, 15 scriptural references yeah for general conference talks then when i just went under topics oh my goodness i'm scrolling through and haven't reached the bottom yet Hmm. i'm gonna guess maybe 60 to 80 talks 
that they put under talking about forgiveness. And then here's the real trump card. Five videos <laughs> on forgiveness <laughs> produced by the church. Three Tabernacle Choir videos. How many references in church magazines and teachings of the president of the church? Chapters on forgiveness in teachings of Joseph Smith, Heber J. Grant, George Albert Smith, Spencer W. Kimball. Wow. Stories, teaching resources, media, four hymns that mention forgiveness. So mm. it feels like, yeah, we can confidently say the scriptures and the prophets teach that a lot. Yeah. We go to the third lens. Does Is forgiveness something that's confirmed by the Spirit? I felt it. Me too. Yeah. Mm. So that was a that was another that's another slam dunk yeah high confidence on that one high confidence okay all right let's do another one okay we should not eat pork can you think of any scriptures that say we shouldn't eat pork Casey yes that's interesting yep what are we at? Leviticus eleven yeah they're all in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and the Old Testament doesn't always get the respect it deserves I think uh-huh. but. I would also add a little asterisk before I say this is taught repeatedly in the scriptures. Okay, asterisk away. It is repeatedly taught under the law of Moses, hmm. and there are multiple scriptures that basically say the law of Moses has been fulfilled. Hmm. So it might not be something that we're asked to do anymore. There's a number of provisions under the law of Moses that were done away or changed or altered hmm. when Jesus came to fulfill the law. Okay. So you would put that one as something that used to be, something we used to should do as God's covenant people, but Mm -hmm. with the fulfillment of the law of Moses, no longer required. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about this one? I have a quote here from George Q. Cannon. He said, We are told that swine's flesh is not good and that we should dispense with it. Hmm. How about this, Brigham Young? If the people were willing to receive the true knowledge from heaven in regard to their diet, they would cease eating swine's flesh. I know this as well as Moses knew it. Hmm. So now we got some prophet. We got one apostle, one president of the church. What are you going to do about that, Casey? You immediately made me think of a talk given by Joseph F. Merrill called Eat Meat Sparingly. Oh, okay. Where he didn't just talk about pork. He cited Section 89 of the Word of Wisdom that we should eat meat sparingly. But I'd also bring up a practical test here, too, which is I don't hear this taught in the church. Mm -hmm. I think I've had one student over the course of my career who came in and said, my family feels really strongly we shouldn't eat pork. I've been teaching for a while now, probably, you know, tens of thousands of students, Mm -hmm. and it's never come up. And I don't remember a sermon on this, a teaching on this in church. Mm -hmm. I don't remember a general conference talk. The examples you cited from Brigham Young was... um, Journal of Discourses 12, page 54 and 55. So I don't know what year that was, but... Yeah, I don't know either. He's been gone for a while, and the George Q. Cannon talk is 1868. 1868, yeah. That's a long time ago. So, I mean, for me, a red flag is, I haven't heard this taught ever in the modern church. It doesn't pass the consistently taught test. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph Smith never taught it. John Taylor through President Nelson never heard it. That says something. I'd also go out of my way and say the book of Acts contradicts it. Mm. Rise, Peter, kill, eat. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. I've never eaten anything unclean. What I have cleansed, call thou not unclean. Mm. So that seems like the Savior saying, no, this isn't a... An expectation any longer. Mm. Even saying you can prove this in the scriptures becomes really muddied when you use the entire scriptural canon. Uh-huh. So now you're looking across the entire canon of scripture because it is undoubtedly in scripture, yeah. but it's not consistently taught, especially post-Law of Moses times. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. All right. What's your doctrinal confidence on that one? <laughs> My doctrinal confidence on we should not eat pork is that's low. Maybe it doesn't exist. Yeah. I think we should be wise how we eat pork. We shouldn't eat too much, uh, all those things. Yeah. But my favorite dish at Cafe Rio is definitely the pork barbacoa salad. So delicious. And I would feel totally comfortable eating that with any member of the 12 or first presidency. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyone you want to throw out? One that I throw out sometimes is we should take the sacrament with our right hand. Oh. So what do you think? Okay. Okay. Well, let's think about that. Okay. Scriptures. Take the sacrament with your right hand. Yeah. See, Jesus gave the sacrament in 3 Nephi 18 to the Nephites. Can't think of him saying that there thinking of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when he introduces it. I can't think of him saying it there. Thinking of DNC 20 mm-hmm. when it's brought up in our constitution of the early church. Nothing about it there. I'm pulling a zero when it comes to scripture. There are multiple references to Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Not about the sacrament. I can't think of anything about the sacrament. But yeah, right hand of God is often associated with Righteousness or covenant, right? Yeah. yeah. I've heard people talk about the right hand as like your covenant hand. Because I was actually taught this as a young man, that you ought to take the sacrament with your right hand because that's your covenant hand. I've heard that. But, but is it true? I don't know. If someone was performing a baptism and they raised their left hand mm. rather than their right hand, we would stop them. Yeah. So in practice, that seems to be significant. Yeah, yeah. But what about teachings of prophets? Okay, so I I do have this. Oh, shoot. This is from the Ensign, official church magazine, March of 1983. Uh Remember how the Ensign, they used to have a, I have a question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd write in, you have a question. Church would ask somebody to write back. Mm -hmm. The question was, is it necessary to take the sacrament with one's right hand? Mm -hmm. The answerer wrote back, the hand used in partaking of the sacrament would logically be the same hand used in making any other sacred oath. For most of us, that would be the right hand. However, sacramental covenants and other eternal covenants as well can be and are made by those who've lost the use of the right hand or who have no hands at all. Mm. Because I have a right hand, I offer it in partaking of the sacrament as an oath. That question was answered by an individual named Russell M. Nelson, Whoa. who at the time was the general president of the Sunday school. Oh, so okay. March 1983, President Nelson. So boom. <laughs> Did I just prove that you're supposed to take the sacrament with your right hand? What you just did was shared one quote that came up in a 1983 insign. Yeah, but it's President Nelson. Sunday school President Nelson saying that's what he does. And if you have a right hand, then how did he say it? If you have a right hand, then you should use it. Is that what he said? Yeah. He said, for most of us, that would be the right hand, but sacramental covenants and other eternal covenants can be and are made by those who've lost the use of the right hand mm. or who have no hands at all because I have a right hand I offered him for taking. So that's not, okay. he's not being super dogmatic here, yeah. I guess you'd say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I don't think God really cares about which hand I partake with. It's not consistently taught in scripture. It's not ever taught in scripture. There's one quote in 1983 that's really gentle about it. I got one more. Oh, you got another one? Oh, bring it. Okay. This is the general handbook okay. from 2020. All right. 
and it's talking about sacrament services. Uh, it just says members partake with their right hand when possible. When possible. So that's pretty recent. And that is the church handbook. Church handbook. That represents the united voice of the First Presidency and the Twelve. Does it? Yeah. So if possible, take with your right hand. Yeah. Let's say I just take it with my left hand. Like, is that going to somehow negate <laughs> the effects of, of renewing my covenant? I don't know. Like, that's so interesting. Right? Because when you initially ask the question, it's like, obviously not. Yeah. Obviously, that's not a doctrine. But now you're like... I'm making your life difficult here. I know. Now I'm like, oh, shoot. So it's in the church handbook of instructions. How come that's never taught in general conference? That's my question. How come that's never taught in church publications? How come I've never heard it in my ward, in state conference? I've never heard it anywhere. It's kind of tucked away in the church handbook of instructions. If that was important, I feel like we would hear it more. It seems very inconsequential, which hand I take the sacrament with, don't you think? And I would say this. It's in the church handbook. To me, that's a big deal. Mm. The church handbook was made available to everybody in 2020. Mm-hmm. And is continually updated by the leadership of the church. Hmm. At the same time, we could say as a practical matter, I've never seen a presiding officer stop a sacrament meeting because somebody took the sacrament with their left hand. Yeah. I've never seen anybody even mildly rebuked yeah. for this. Ever. I wouldn't rebuke anybody. I remember after the new handbook came out that Sunday, our baby was asleep on my right hand when they passed the sacrament. And so the question was, am I going to flip the baby and wake her up? No, you never flip the baby. You never flip yeah, the baby. Yeah. And my wife looked at me like, ooh, what are you going to do? And I just took it with my left hand, and I don't feel super guilty or anything about it. Yeah, because it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible. You had a baby on your right hand. There's a practical side of things here, too. Mm. And I think our third lens here, which is the Spirit, would say I, we wouldn't condemn people for using the wrong hand, though I have taken my own children aside and said, hey, when you can, try and use your right hand. Mm, that one's so interesting to me. How confident are we that you should take the sacrament with the right hand? I still wouldn't say really high. I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I'm willing to, I'll do whatever. But If you made the statement with your right hand when possible, I would say my confidence is fairly high there. When possible. I feel pretty good about it. Okay. Mm, interesting. Do you want to hear my, my second one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, lay it on us. Okay, okay. So, the Savior's infinite atonement saves and redeems people on all the worlds that God has created. Mm. So, how doctrinally confident are you in that statement? I can think of one verse of Scripture that might say that. Mm-hmm. In Doctrine and Covenants 76, verse 22 through 24, is Joseph and Sidney's statement about This is the testimony last of all, which we give of him that he lives. Mm -hmm. For we saw him even on the right hand of the Father. And then they say, we heard the voice bearing record that this is the only begotten of the Father that, I'm just quoting from memory here, so tell me if I'm getting this right, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. I'm impressed with your memory. That might be saying that the people on the other planets also become the children of God in the same way, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same way that we become the full inheriting children of God in this world. Something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but then there's this poem 
that Joseph wrote. Right? There's a poetic version of section 76 where mm-hmm. it seems like he's clarifying the intent of that, where he says, going with memory again here, so help me if I get this wrong. I got the poem. Do you want me to read the poem? Okay, yeah. Okay, you quote it. Yeah, quote it. <laughs> this is a poem Joseph Smith wrote probably with W.W. W. Phelps, appeared in the Times and Seasons, mm-hmm. volume four, page 82. I heard a great voice bearing record from heaven. He's the Savior and only begotten of God. By him, of him, and through him, the worlds were all made, even all the career in the heavens so broad, whose inhabitants, too, from the first to the last, are saved by the very same Savior of ours, and, of course, are begotten God's daughters and sons by the very same truths and the very same powers. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be Joseph's commentary on the meaning of verses 22 through 24. Yeah. And he seems to be saying there really clearly that, they're saved by the very same Savior as ours, uh-huh. people on those other worlds, right? Mm-hmm. I can think of at least two more scriptures, too. Oh, yeah. Where else? So 2 Nephi 9, 7, an infinite atonement. Because the statement is Jesus Christ's infinite atonement saves all of God's children regardless of what world they live on. Infinite appears in 2 Nephi 9, 7. It appears again Alma 34. in Alma 34. Mm-hmm. Amulek teaches that. But I would, I would push back on the 2 Nephi 9 and... Alma 34, like that's not in context of talking about other worlds. True. That's talking about the scope of Jesus's sacrificial death in terms of who's going to be impacted by it on this world, right? Mm-hmm. It's not really even speaking to the question of other worlds. So I don't know if that's really a solid scriptural basis for that particular question. See, and I would say it's pretty hard to get around the word infinite, isn't it? I think it just means universally applicable. In context, right, in 2 Nephi 9, Jacob is saying that everybody, because of the fall, is going to die, rot, and crumble. And because of the infinite atonement, all will be brought forth from the dead. So infinite is like this universal coverage, as it were. I think in context, don't you think? Yeah. I'm just saying I I can't put any asterisks on the word infinite. Mm. I'd say my doctrinal confidence is high when it comes to this particular statement. But what about you? We don't have to agree. Yeah, we're highlighting here how this is a heuristic, right? It's not a perfect model, right? but it's helpful. It's a helpful model. So different Latter-day Saints can come down in different places on this. Yeah. Because there's also a, a conflicting statement by John Taylor where he talked about the Savior being the Savior of this earth and other earths having saviors, which I thought was a little bit odd in light of what Joseph Smith had taught. Mm-hmm. I tend to side with Joseph on pretty much every doctrinal point ever. Uh-huh. I think he's such a pure source. And so my confidence is high, even though it's not consistently taught through Scripture. That's where the heuristic breaks down a little bit. Like when Joseph Smith is commenting on something, kind of like in the King Follett Discourse, he says some things in the King Follett Discourse that you can't find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I just I believe it. I believe that like we can become like God and that God was once like us, for instance. like That's a pretty like powerful truth. Not taught exactly anywhere in Scripture that God was once like us, at least. Mm-hmm. And yet that just resonates with my soul. So... Yeah, I I have high confidence that Christ's atonement covers all the inhabitants of all the earth that he had anything to do with creating. Mm -hmm. To me, that that sits well. But I would still respect anyone that disagreed with that. If we're modeling this skill, right, we'd have to say John Taylor appears to have said something else. Yeah. And that could be a thoughtful, considered opinion. Yeah. It also helps me that, you know, another prophet did teach this. This was Russell M. Nilsson before he's the prophet. Yeah, But he gave a talk where he said his atonement is infinite without an end. And the mercy of the atonement extends not only to an infinite number of people, but an infinite number of worlds created by him. It was infinite 
beyond any human scale of measurement or mortal comprehension. That seems to line up with Section 76 and Joseph Smith. And I think if I put all those together, I'm pretty high level of confidence in this one. Your confidence is waxing strong. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. That was fun. All right, let's do one more. Okay, let's do it. And you get to choose here. I'm going to say two statements. You tell us which one we should dig into. How about this one? There is no possibility of progression between kingdoms of glory. You can't progress from telestial to terrestrial or from terrestrial to celestial. Okay. Or should we do evolution as an explanation for the origin of man is definitely false? Which one do you want to do? Let's do evolution, partially because that progression <laughs> between the kingdoms of glory is a hand grenade. <laughs> And evolution's not? Well, evolution's less of a hand grenade. It's the progression between kingdoms that people like get up in arms. People have really strong feelings about that. Well, maybe we should do that one then. I just have never had a satisfying discussion with someone over it okay. where we came to a conclusion. Well, I think it's helpful to look at the evidence. I'm going to do it really quick. Then we'll go back to evolution. Okay, do it really quick. Yeah, you have statements that are for and against by apostles on both sides, right? Right. So you've got President Kimball saying that... After a person has been assigned to his place in the kingdom, either the telestial, terrestrial, or celestial, he will never advance from his assigned glory to another glory. That is eternal. That's a pretty strong statement. Yeah. But then you have like Hiram Smith, assistant church president, when he said this back in 1843. He said, those of the terrestrial glory either advance to the celestial or recede to the telestial. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. But then if you write the first presidency. Here's what the secretary of the first presidency would send out, at least back in the 1950s or 1960s. Here's a response they would give. Quote, the brethren direct me to say, this is the secretary of the first presidency, that the church has never announced a definite doctrine upon this point. Some of the brethren have held the view that it was possible in the course of progression to advance from one glory to another, invoking the principle of eternal progression. I think James E. Talmadge will go that direction. Hiram Smith, I think Wilford Woodruff has a quote on this. Mm -hmm. Others of the brethren have taken the opposite view, like President Kimball I just quoted, Elder McConkie and others. But as stated, the church has never announced a definite doctrine on this point. So maybe that's all we need to say on that one is that it is ambiguous, and there are apostles who have strong opinions on both sides. And that, I think that's a key, actually. When you see apostles with strong opinions on both sides of the issue, that's a great way in your mind to say, that's not a settled point. Mm -hmm. There's not harmony. There's not consistency. And therefore, my doctrinal confidence in that is going to be maybe semi or low, you know? Yeah. And so that would be the quick version of how I would do that one is just to say, that's fine being ambiguous. If the Lord hasn't felt to reveal clarity on that point and apostles have different opinions, no problem. See, and I think the reason why I'm adverse to that one is it always turns into a this apostle versus this apostle yeah. kind of thing. I don't like to do that. Yeah. I totally accept that apostles can have different opinions, yeah. but then it turns into a, well, President Kimball's more recent than Hiram Smith. <laughs> well, Hiram Smith was the co-president of the church, yeah, and he's a foundational figure, and, and I just don't like when we set up one church leader against another one. Right. They can't have differences and disagreements, but that's where that road leads yeah. is us saying, well, he's my favorite, <laughs> and so I'm going to go with them. Yeah, the evidence just suggests it's inconclusive, basically, right? Yeah. All right. What do you want to say about evolution? Ooh, okay, evolution. Evolution as an explanation for the origin of man is definitely false. 
Is there any scripture, Casey, that says that evolution could not be the way in which God created this world? I can't think of any, to be honest with you, except maybe 2 Nephi 2, Mm. where it talks about no change in the Garden of Eden. They would have remained in the same state which they were in when they were created. But I think there's also ways to work around that, too. Mm -hmm. There's others that sound like it could be. For instance, in Genesis and in Moses, it says, let the earth bring forth plants. So... God commands the earth to bring forth plants. Mm. That could be a poetic description of evolution. He says, let the waters bring forth animals. Yeah, That could be a poetic description. I'm thinking Moses 2, 22 to 23. But then when he talks about the creation of man, he does say we fashioned them in our own image. It seems like the language is different there. Yeah, That's not a slam dunk for or against when it comes to the scriptures, as far as I'm concerned. Because mm. there's ways to harmonize yeah. that idea with the scriptures. I don't know. One member of the Twelve, Elder Stephen L. Richards, you don't hear him quoted a lot, but he wrote once back in 1933 when this was a really hot topic, he wrote something called An Open Letter to College Students in the Improvement Era, in which he said this, quote, If the evolutionary hypothesis of the creation of life and matter in the universe is ultimately found to be correct, and I shall neither be disappointed nor displeased if it shall turn out so to be, in my humble opinion, the biblical account is sufficiently comprehensive to include the whole of the process. He thought this could be very well squared with Scripture. Like you're saying, a case could be made. Yeah. President David O. McKay was also quite favorable that this could very well be how it was done. But then there's some contrasting opinions, aren't there? Yeah. Especially Elder Joseph Fielding Smith wrote a book called Man, His Origin, and Destiny, where he says absolutely false. He says Scripture does not affirm it. If you accept the Scriptures, then you have to reject evolution. He was pretty hardliner on that. Mm-hmm. Elder McConkie kind of followed in that same way. So here again is a great example of kind of one where you have to say, okay, there's apostles who have conflicting ideas on this or conflicting opinions. Yeah, I know that makes you uncomfortable, Casey. It makes all of us uncomfortable. <laughs> but it does, it does suggest that that's not a settled point. You cannot use Scripture to debunk evolution, basically, right? Yeah. You can't find united, consistent, harmonious statements from the prophets or apostles that are opposed to evolution. So evolution is is something that does get some people uncomfortable, but there is plenty of room, uh, Elder Stephen L. Richard says, Elder David O. McKay says, for those who find this a persuasive theory, like there's totally room for people to believe that in the church and have temple recommends and be fine, right? That is not a test of faithfulness, whether you do or do not believe in evolution. So that's an interesting and important point. I would say part of the reason why we have this scale of doctrinal confidence is I could say to a classroom full of students, if you don't believe in evolution, it's okay. Mm -hmm. That's a supportable position. If you do believe in evolution, that's okay. That's a supportable position. I can think of an apostle that was contemporary to Joseph Fielding Smith and James E. Talmadge. That's Joseph Merrill who would say, I don't really care. (laughs) (laughs) He was a physicist, and whenever anybody asked him about evolution, he would basically say, The universe, guys, the universe is so complex that there is a God. Let's don't play around in the mud and worry about stuff like that. Mm. There's a God. Here's what God said to us. Here's what God tells us to do. I don't need much beyond that. Yeah. And let me just show you how the church threads the needle on some of these more difficult questions. A couple years ago, in the New Era, back when the New Era was still being published, there was an I have a question, and the question was, what is the church's teachings on the theory of evolution. This was the statement made. This is the New Era, October 2016, page 41. This is what 
This official church publication said, the church has no official position on the theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. Organic evolution or changes to species inherited traits over time is a matter for scientific study. Nothing has been revealed concerning evolution. Though the details of what happened on earth before Adam and Eve, including how their bodies were created, have not been revealed, our teachings regarding man's origin are clear and come from revelation. Before we were born on earth, we're the spirit children of heavenly parents with bodies in their image. God directed the creation of Adam and Eve and placed their spirits in their bodies. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve, our first parents, who were created in God's image. There were no spirit children of Heavenly Father on earth before Adam and Eve were created. Mm. So you can see them kind of threading the needle here, basically saying, here's what the scriptures say, and here's what they don't say. Yeah. And so here's what we have to defend, and here's what we don't have to defend. And don't waste time worrying about stuff that we don't have answers to quite yet. And I like how they said that's a matter for science to take up, right? That the scientific method is more tool to answer this than is the theological method. Yeah. Right? There's nothing that's been revealed about that. Therefore, we don't have anything theologically to go on. Therefore, this is a great question for the scientific method. Let's keep pursuing that. Yeah. We haven't been doing this for the last hour to muddy the waters. Nope. We've been doing this to show there are Things that we have high doctrinal confidence in. Yeah. That's the stuff that we defend, that we stand up for, that makes up the foundation of our beliefs. There's a lot of stuff that we have very low doctrinal confidence in, and you don't necessarily have to defend that stuff. You don't have to argue with somebody for an hour about whether or not Cain and Bigfoot are the same person. <laughs> it doesn't matter, and we don't teach it. Yeah. And then there's other things where it's okay for us to say, hey, we don't really know on that particular question. Let's explore this together and see if we can come to a conclusion where everybody's okay. Yeah. And in that sense, this model can be really useful because we defend the things that we really believe in. We don't have to defend the things that we don't teach or believe in. And we need to have charity and grace for each other when we can't reconcile or we come to opposing views yeah. on things if we can't definitively say yes or no, this is a teaching of the church. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Yeah, that's right. Think about those things that we have high confidence in, like God will forgive us as we truly repent of our sins. Yeah. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Mm -hmm. There are doctrines that matter, and they actually affect our life deeply, and there are others that just do not. <laughs> yeah. And that's the value of going through this doctrinal heuristic. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Church History Matters. In our next episode, we shift gears away from doctrinal confidence to discuss how to develop historical confidence. Specifically, we'll get into how trained historians think about and evaluate the reliability of historical sources, and how we can begin to do the same by asking a series of five questions. If you're enjoying Church History Matters, we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and comment on the podcast. That makes us easier to find. Today's episode was produced by Scott Woodward and edited by Nick Galetti and Scott Woodward with show notes and transcript by Gabe Davis. Church History Matters is a podcast of Scripture Central, a nonprofit which exists to help build enduring faith in Jesus Christ by making Latter-day Saint scripture and church history accessible, comprehensible, and defensible to people everywhere. For more resources to enhance your gospel study, go to scripturecentral.org where everything is available for free because of the generous donations of people like you. And while we try very hard to be historically and doctrinally accurate in what we say on this podcast, please remember that all views expressed in this and every episode are our views alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Scripture Central or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Thank you so much for being a part of this with us. 